Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are part of the Morbidly Beautiful Podcast Network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community, from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we are so happy to be part of the spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now, on with the show. Welcome to I Spit on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where I put down my bloody needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are changing up the horror medium and talking about Grady Hendrick's book, We Sold Our Souls. We will talk about the author, the book, and we will closely examine the themes of compromising your soul for the price of fame, as well as the satanic panic in the 1980s and 90s and its impact on the metal genre. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. We'll start with a brief bio on the man himself, Grady Hendrix. So Grady Hendrix is the creator of such novels as Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, Paperbacks from Hell, The Twisted History of 70s and 80s Horror Fiction, We Sold Our Souls, and his latest release is The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slain Vampires. Horror Store is actually being turned into a movie that Grady Hendrix is going to write. He was also the screenwriter for the horror comedy Satanic Panic that came out last year. He is one of the founders of the New York Asian Film Festival. Grady Hendrix is a huge Asian cinema fan, especially J-Horror. In 2004, he really wanted to show Takashi Miike's Gozu, in which a gangster turns into a woman and then gives birth to a fully grown male during intercourse. But Miike already had acquired a legitimate U.S. distributor. Wah, wah. <laughs> that is insane. S- side note. I love Takashi Miike and his wacky, ridiculous, over-the-top films. And Gozu is actually on my list for 31 Days of Horror for 2B TV because it's on there and I'm really excited. Well, based on that <laughs> description alone, I cannot wait to hear your reaction and hear about this film. <laughs> this is up my alley. I can't wait. Yeah, just that brief description. It's like one sentence. I'm sold. I'm yeah. sold. <laughs> And Grady Hendrix is, uh, he's written for Playboy Magazine, Slate, The Village Voice, The New York Post, Film Comment, and Variety. And as of May 11, 2020, Grady Hendrix has also started his own podcast called Super Scary Haunted Homeschool. They're wonderful, like 30 to 40 minute episodes, and he's funny, and they're really educational, and they're fantastic. Super recommend it. The premise of the book, We Sold Our Souls, is this, so... We Sold Our Souls is a story about the struggle to maintain authenticity in a world driven by consumerism and the capitalist desire for fame and fortune. What makes this story unique is that it focuses around a metal band. Where metal is typically seen as rebellious and counterculture, this book highlights that even the metal genre can't escape the world of corporate sponsorship to stay relevant. We meet Chris Polanski as a teenager picking up her first guitar and starting her dream of becoming part of a band. But then we realize that this is all a memory as we meet then Chris at the end of her career, broke, aged hard from all the years on the road 
playing live performances, living out of her mother's house, and managing the reception desk at the Best Western. One night as she's driving home, she sees that her former best friend, bandmate, and nemesis Terry Hunt, now known as the Blind King, is having a farewell tour and she realizes that she needs to have some closure and to learn why he betrayed her and their band, Dirt Work, on contract night so many years ago. The novel follows Chris's journey to reconnect with her old bandmates, fellow guitarist Scotty Rocket, bassist Turk, and drummer Bill, as she tries to reconcile the damage that was caused, but also learn the dark truth of what really happened to them all. Not knowing that she is being followed by a force darker and stronger than she realizes. This is not just a supernatural horror novel, but one that shows the reader the type of sinister forces that are at work that artists in the industry must struggle against to become successful. There is a side story to Chris's journey, which is that of Melanie. She is a female metal fan leading the same life as the rest of us millennials, being overeducated and working a minimum wage job just to barely make ends meet. But she's had metal music her whole life to help her through hard times and when she feels disillusioned. Her journey is about to go see Coffin perform live and start a new life, with her path intersecting with Chris along the way as they both try to take back control and fight against the dark shadow of the Iron Mountain taking over them. Jess, for that a wonderful synopsis. So my story surrounding Grady Hendrix and novels and horror literature is about 20 years ago, like as a teenager anyways, I used to read it all the time. I used to read a lot of horror paperbacks, like go to the local uh, used bookstore. It's called Alice and the Bookman. Jess knows it well. We've probably talked about it before, yes. but uh, <laughs> it's still there. It's still open. Though the prices sadly have gone up, <laughs> inflation, I guess. <laughs> Instead of books being like one to two dollars or like three or four dollars. Oh, okay. I've, yeah. I've gone in the last couple of years. Actually, I found some R.L. Stein books there. Amazing. Yeah, so I used to I used to read them all the time, but about 20 years ago, I kind of just stopped reading a lot of horror novels. The odd book here and there, but uh, not as much as I used to. And I heard about Grady Hendrix through the horror channels. Might have been a Rumorg magazine. I've just yet like I heard about him. There's rumors about him, but I hadn't really checked out anything of his until Paperbacks from Hell. That hmm. one really intrigued me because it, you know, it's nonfiction about fiction and it's also cut like a semi-hardcover with all this wonderful um, like cover art from all these books. And it was such an interesting time for for horror, the 70s and 80s and early 90s of, of literature. And I thought it was really great. I loved the book. And also Grady Hendrix did a short run through Canada. And thankfully, Toronto was one of his stops where he did like a live show of it. Talked about like writing the book and about the books and just like a quick overview of what he talks about. And it really highlighted his passion for the genre it is humor and I met him afterwards and he's just like the loveliest loveliest man um, that was actually around the time when he was promoting we sold our souls that he was going to be making a horror book about a metal band so we kind of talked about that and I was really intrigued like that we sold our souls is actually the next book that I thought might be right up my alley so I was really curious about that and Jess bought me uh, my best friend's exorcism last year, either for my birthday or Christmas. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at some point. And then during the pandemic, I bought myself We Sold Our Souls. And here we are to talk about it. That's amazing. And I remember being jealous when you got to meet Grady Hendrix and actually go to that book signing and get and all that, because I had picked up that copy of that book at the time that he was doing that. And I was super excited. Yeah. 
because we all know a little bit about my history. I started in the horror genre technically through literature, through um, R.L. Stein, Goosebumps, Fear Street, Christopher Pike, Anne Rice, Interview of Vampire, H.P. Lovecraft, so on and so on. And so for me, when I found out about Grady Hendrix, and the reason and the way I found out about him was just like, I've talked about this in my monthly pick, but I was looking for a different horror writer. Like I was like, someone outside of uh, Stephen King and Clive Barker, and mm. I landed on uh, Grady Hendrix, both uh, first reading his book, um, My Best Friend's Ex- Exorcism for a book club, and then um, I read Horror Store. I actually listened to it um, as an audiobook in the beginning of the pandemic. And then I also own a copy of the same book there from the all about all the horror novels from the 70s, 80s, and I love mm-hmm. it too, because I used to not buy those books, but I remember looking at them in the grocery stores and being like, these these covers look so cool, and like, what's in the story? And then to actually find out what actually some of these stories are about, it's like, oh, now I even want to find more of these books. But for me, you got me a copy of We Sold Our Souls for Christmas yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> last year. We buy each other books from Grady Hendrix, and now we're talking about them. Like, this just happens magically, <laughs> organically with us. Yeah, exactly. So we're just like, ah, oh, you know, we like, well, I think because he, he, he touches on some things that we both are enjoying yeah. in terms of the sense of, like, you know, metal, exorcisms, like, possession, yep. the 80s. 80s, you know? yeah, totally. Right? And I know for me, like, the book Horror Star was like, oh, I know what, like, working in retail is all about and how this is a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, his work this. is very relatable. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. So for me, this is my second time reading this book. Like I said, I read it when Kelly got it and I gobbled it up in like a couple of weeks. And then the same thing happened this time around with this book. It's uh, one of my favorite of his, which would then lead me into now that you've read it for the first time, Kelly, what did you think? What did you like? What did you dislike? I absolutely loved this book so, so much. There were like early on, I remember there's like this big, one of the like the first kind of like big moments in the book. And of course, I'm not going to spoil that for you folks, but there's a big moment early in the book where I just stopped and I was like, this is too intense. Because <laughs> there's some like real, it's like slight, it's really light on like the horror, the supernatural horror and oftentimes quite heavy on the graphic human on human violence, which I wasn't yeah. expecting. And yeah. so I had to put it down and I text Jess. I was like, what the fuck is happening? Like, this is so intense. And like, this is too much. And I'm like, I am loving this already. I think I was like 100 pages in. I was like, yes. And like I said, like maybe my frame of reference isn't, you know, it's not huge because I haven't really read a lot of novels. But from this like very like innocent, unclouded frame of mind and perspective, mm-hmm. I think it is incredibly well done book and within the prologue I was already extremely interested in Chris's journey and then I fell absolutely in love with how compelling the story is it's so well written it's well described it's angry it's emotional it's grim it's dark it's super honest Uh, I could imagine everything that was happening I felt everything that was happening and I thought it was very gripping really excited and perfectly paced oh my goodness and I think sometimes that's my problem with some books that I like decide to read is the pacing I find that with my horror movies too but definitely if a book if I'm gonna sit and read a book you just I need the pacing to be up I like other things, but I'll stop right there and you can start with some of your things that you like. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say too, I agree with you in the sense of the pacing and that's why I was able to read these books so quickly yeah. because you just, you get, it gets into it right from the get-go and it just mm-hmm. doesn't stop and it's like, it's it's just enough for what you enjoy and that's what I mean. Like getting through this book, like you said, it has this, the element of horror that is 
can be quite graphic at some points. Like you said, that human on human. And I remember when you did text me about that one scene, I was like, oh, yeah, wait until later on in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Like, just you wait. Just wait. Um, But yeah, like second time around reading this, I loved it because I picked up on things that were so small and minuscule earlier on Mm -hmm. the book that end up showing up later in the book. And I remember the first time reading it being like, I don't understand why this character is important so late in this book. I don't even remember who they are. And then when I read it a second time around, they showed up very early in the book, but it was like like a couple sentences, but it was like, but they were highlighting something more significant that ends up you seeing later on. I was like, oh yes, this is so great. And then um, I love the character. I love Chris's journey. I really relate to Melanie and her journey because mm-hmm. I am essentially Melanie. You um, are. <laughs> you are essentially her. You are her. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's really realistic. You can relate to it in a sense of like, because this book is not just about, you know, following your dreams and your passions and how at times you can get kind of screwed over. So that is also talking about real life things like the working class and how, mm-hmm. how we have to, what we need to do to get by day to day. Right. And like Chris's mm-hmm. journey is all about how she scraped by to live her dream and her passion and, and to have this follow her careers and you know when we see the same thing story with Melanie right she's scrimping and saving just to get by just to have a life and right and mm-hmm. this is kind of like mm-hmm. and then we see like this working class up against like this like you know the corporateization of music and and people right and and I didn't expect this too um what I enjoy about this book is that the mythology that comes out of it mm-hmm. is really interesting and that surprised me when I first read it and I appreciate it even more now a second time reading it because it was just like it reminds you of like those epic metal albums that are all concept right and they give you they tell you a story oh my god yes all I could do is just like nod and say yes because yes I also was super surprised by how rich and like this book isn't super long I don't like it's yeah it's not a super long book it's not super like big it's not one of those like epic tomes of like Stephen King you know but it's got such a rich story and rich well-developed characters and a rich mythology that was so interesting I think really fleshed out well that one of the other things that I loved about it for sure I love that it gives us a glimpse into the world of metal and bands and what it's like to be a struggling artist in the day in day out and the shit that you go through whether you're a woman or not Uh, as a musician being in a band and like promoters ripping you off and just like unsavory elements that unfortunately everybody has to deal with and I just I love that because I've I know many musicians I've dated musicians I've friends as musicians so I just I could it was such an authentic look into it I loved the authentic uh look into like I guess authenticity versus performative art the high the whole idea of selling out yeah Chris Polanski what a wonderful wonderful character really really cool I saw a lot of myself in Chris she was just like really headstrong and really passionate and she just gave it her all and she just had such will to live and this like perseverance oh, yes. and Jess and I have talked about this like off the record, offline, (laughs) um, about how we can see a lot in horror stories and in horror movies where women seem to just have over the male characters this incredible strength of will. They want to live. They're going to fight and scream and they want to live. Whereas it seems like men seem to kind of bow out and get defeated really easily. And we see that in her. So I think that was really wonderful as well. And Bones, 
I want my own set of bones. <laughs> also with somebody as a with a pleather jacket that I love so so much. I put that on and was like, and I'm home. And that was like hers. And I remember, slight spoiler. Anyways, her beautiful, cool ass fucking jacket gets burned up in a fire. And I was like, no, no. bones. Oh. Like, I, I mourned the death of bones. That's for sure. <laughs> That's totally understandable. And like, you know, going back to that point there about the whole Chris Polanski really wanting to survive and she's that example of women wanting to survive and you really see that in this book is really highlighted with all the male characters around her you know in the sense Mm -hmm. that they just like give in right or they you know unfortunately we don't want to spoil it but like there's a lot of that happening and you can see this juxtaposition really clearly or like how quick is like well it's just easier just to give them what they want and be able to live my life quietly or just to you know do give you a, give, to give everything away that's yeah. not that's not yours right yeah and now chris is very passionate about fighting to get what was what she yep. created what she wanted back what else uh i don't know like there was humor in it i liked that a lot the new metal mentions which we'll totally talk about <laughs> later which i just i just thought it was so relevant and so just you can tell just how much detail and how much research he put into this book and it's all about those details the the band references the album references Jess hadn't even noticed that each, <laughs> each the title of each chapter was a metal album. Yeah, title. I, so it's just like all known, those things. Because <laughs> he he did that in my best friend's exorcism was all like every chapter was a title of an eighties music, yeah. and I was like, ah. Yeah. So when he told me that, I was like, of course, of course. <laughs> it's just the amount of detail that he puts into it. I really appreciated, and just like the overall premise, I liked a lot, and it reminded me of that really cheesy movie that I still really like. It's called Rockstar starring Mark Wahlberg, where he's a singer. He's passionate about his music. He does have like a cover band, but he wants to do his own thing. And then he idolizes uh, this one huge metal band, which it's like very 80s. It's like a big hair metal glam glam metal type band and they need a new singer he tries out then he gets to be a singer for one of his favorite bands and now he feels like he has made it quote unquote and he can now like live his dream of being like the successful popular you know musician and tour and everything's just like wonderful wonderful and fantastic and he's got money but then it turns out that you know he's kind of more of a hired gun and he can't have passion in something that he doesn't really have any place holding in you know he doesn't contribute to the band they don't want him to contribute to the band and they just want him to sing because he's a good singer and be like the face because he's good looking and he's a good performer and he's like well that's not what I want to do I'm a musician I want to create music I have an art that I want to create and leaves the band and then you see him at the end he's all grungy with a sweater the short hair that all those grunge artists had in the 90s but he's playing his own music again with an acoustic guitar and like it's a really cheesy movie but like the premise is really cool and I liked it a lot and that's what it reminded me of so I like that okay Nice. Mm-hmm. Should we move on to dislikes, I guess? <laughs> I was going to say, I'm just like, yeah, let's move on to dislikes. I, I realize there is one thing I dislike about this book. Mm. Everything else I love. The one thing I dislike about this book is I am claustrophobic. Mm. So the scene of Chris crawling down the pipes into the oh, mountain the and caves out and, and the walls. I, yeah, underground. Uh, yeah. No, no. When she's like describing trying to like L herself around a pipe corner, I'm like, I would die. I would literally just yeah. die. I'd just be like, okay, that's it. Just kill me here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you would just die there. Just like, well, this is just where I die. Which I, is I, like, 
yeah. power to Grady Hendrix is such a great scene, and it is horrific, and like I really felt it. But I'm claustrophobic, so it was like the only thing I dislike. That was that was hard <laughs> for you. Yeah. As a non-claustrophobic person, I can appreciate how those scenes can affect people. I liked the details in it too, where it's like she realizes that like the more she struggles, the more she t- is tense, that the less she's gonna move, and the less she's gonna be able to move forward and get to where she needs to go. So that there's all these moments of like her being like relax, remove your muscles. Like, okay, now I can move a little bit, but you just have to take that moment to take a couple, well, as deep of a breath as you can, relax and move forward. Hello, you know, analogy for day-to-day life. (laughs) (laughs) The more tense and anxious and upset and scared Uh, you are, the less you're going to move forward. So take a couple deep breaths, relax, carry on. Because you're going to be fine. You're going to make it out. At the end. Really, really good advice for everyone going through the <laughs> pandemic right now. Just relax, breathe, mm-hmm. take a couple deep breaths. So for me, I didn't like anything about the book per se. I loved it and I devoured it and I would 666% read it again. Um, and I don't say that a lot about books that I read and in the sense of like fiction books. Um, but this one, I would read it again. I, as soon as I was done, I was like, I want to read this again immediately. Like that's how much I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't like Terry Hunt as a character, but like I get why he was the way mm. he was. His whiny, fragile, white male ego. He was really annoying. Yeah. And in a climax where she does get to, to confront him, I was like, oh... Well, that like that was so predictable that that's how he acted. But like, I feel like that's just perfect, though. Like mm-hmm. he was supposed to be that way. That is the point. You yeah. know, oh, it's just like I want to say something like, OK, can't ruin the end of the book. So it's just like, yeah, yeah. This, the reason why he had to be this way. <laughs> it yes. worked out, though. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so now we're going to both read our favorite moments or scenes from the book. You can go first. All right, so the scene, uh, like, there's a lot of scenes in this book that I absolutely love and adore. Um, A lot of it's very powerful, but for me, there's this one, particularly at the end, that I love, and I'll read it for you guys now. So, Chris dropped her windbreaker and came up over the shoulder of the guitar tech, whose beard was way too big for his face. Hey, she said, indicating a strat, as Terry's hoarse voice rambled on. What's that tuned in? What? The tech whispered, giving her a quick look. He had decided that she was probably the big guy's girlfriend and turned back to the stage. Standard. Sounds good, Chris said. Without giving herself time to think, Chris Polanski picked up the instrument and stepped out of the shadows and walked into the stage lights in front of 440,000 people, strapping on the strat as she went. With the guitar bouncing off her hip, she walked over the cables, past all the gear, to the front of the stage, into Terry's space, into the limelight. Into the focus, force, and intensity of 880,000 eyeballs and their unblinking camera phones. She didn't worry. She didn't smile. She didn't feel out of place. A girl with a guitar never has to apologize for anything. That is my favorite moment of this book because it is so poignant in the sense of just like, she doesn't have to answer to anyone. She's here, she's being her authentic self in this moment and that she doesn't have to apologize apologize or be anything for anyone. She just needs to be herself. And that, I love that moment. Also a great moment. I agree. So this was, this is page 127. And this is like, I already was like really into this book, but this is the moment where I knew that Grady Hendrix fucking got it. He understood what this book was about. As the air turned black, Chris saw Bill and Miranda smiling at each other, nodding, so pleased with themselves. She saw little Charles, Tuck, Bill, Terry, men who could hurt her, men who controlled her. She was one girl, alone, strapped to a bed. They were bigger than her, they were more powerful, and she had been abandoned by her family, abandoned by her friends. She had nothing, 
except her music. Inside her head, she heard Scotty's voice say, trust troglodyte. Metal never dies. Metal never retreats. Metal never surrenders. The world went black. She was ready. Such a good moment. Yeah, that is the moment I knew that Grady Hendrix understood what metal was. move on to talking about selling your soul for fame and fortune, making a pact with the devil and the origins of that myth. Early, early on, there was the the idea and the concept of a Faustian bargain where it's made with a power that the bargainer, the person who wants to sell their soul, recognizes that it's amoral, it's evil, it's not right. So these bargains are, of course, by nature, tragic or self-defeating because uh, the person that makes them is surrendering something that is ultimately far more valuable than what you're going to obtain from it, whether or not they appreciate it in the moment. But of course, we all learn after the fact that perhaps that was not the best idea. What Kelly's talking here in terms of a Faustian bargain, in terms of also Christian mythology, is that the devil, this being, he resides, he or she resides over hell and offers internal torment to souls under his authority. Yet, on the earthly realm, he or she can appear and offer people untold pleasures all at the power of the cost of their souls. Mm. So there is some history around this, as Kelly was saying, like these origins, Faustian bargain, but there's also been some times in history where that people have been told or said to have sold their souls. So the earliest one is known of the story of Theophilus. He was a 6th century clerk who has apparently made a deal with Satan for higher position in the church. Ironic. <laughs> he signed the contract with his own blood, renowned God and then became a bishop. But he felt mm-hmm. so bad about what he did and regretted his decision that apparently he prayed to the Virgin Mary, who apparently appeared to him, and she said that he needed to fast and she need- he needed to recant and he needed to re-pledge himself to God and then he would claim reclaim his soul back. So apparently he had burned the contract that he had with the devil, he <laughs> died, and then apparently his soul went to heaven. Other means of selling <laughs> your soul has also come up from other literary works such as The Devil and Daniel Webster. So this is a book written by Stephen Vincent Benin in 1963, and this is a story about a lawyer named Daniel Webster who is called to represent Jabez Stone in a legal battle against the devil who has returned to claim Jabez's soul after he sold it for seven years of prosperity. So these are the literary references towards selling our soul, but there actually has been some real life examples. And I think, Kelly, you've got an example. Yeah. So there's an early one. We'll go to the most famous one. But there was a violinist because generally public performers were usually the most guilty of this transgression. You know, artists actors, musicians, those all in the public eye. Mm. So in 1712, he had a dream where he sold his soul to the devil, this violinist, and the devil took his instrument and played the greatest song he had ever heard. So upon awakening, he went directly to his violin to reconstruct the song, and it turned out to be his most famous, commonly referred to as the Devil's Trill Sonata. And then our most famous that we, I, most of us even know whether you're a blues musician or a blues music aficionado. 
<laughs> in the late 1920s, blues musician Tommy Johnson started making waves with his recordings. Um, he started to become more popular, gain attention, even adopted something of a sinister kind of stage persona. And then rumors started to spread that he had actually sold his soul to the devil for his musical skill. And legend states that, you know, he wasn't particularly good musician until he took his guitar to the old crossroads mm. where he met the devil disguised as a man. The devil tuned the guitar for Johnson and returned to him, a gesture symbolic of them sealing the deal. And this idea of a crossroads and selling your soul at the de- to the devil at the crossroads is actually a well-known mm-hmm. in the Supernatural community, uh, part- in particularly <laughs> for people who watch the show Supernatural, because the Winchester <laughs> brothers always go to the crossroads to meet oh up with the God. devil to, or a demon to get their soul or to get someone's Ugh, soul back. But this is the... <laughs> But this is the most known theory mm-hmm. about selling your soul, that you would have to meet the devil at the crossroads to sell your soul, and then you became like a you know famous blues musician, and this musician that we, like Kelly was talking about, devilish imagery also came up in the songs that he sa- he sung, So and, that's, and this helped to perpetuate this mm-hmm. belief that he had sold his soul to the devil, because he was singing songs like, Me and the Devil Blues, Hellhound on My Trail, Crossroad Blues, right? <laughs> so he, he kept up with that sinister persona, and then like later on you'll have other famous people like uh, David Copperfield, who was a famous illusionist, he was rumored to have sold his soul to the devil for his ability to do the impossible tricks that he does. So there is this ideology behind it. There is this mythos behind selling your soul. But what does really selling your soul mean? Well, since I don't believe in souls, <laughs> I don't feel like it's literally a thing that you can do. But metaphorically, I think what it means is selling your authenticity. And obviously in We Sold Our Souls, it's a supernatural book. So Terry Hunt is the man that like on our, you know, alleged contract night, the big night that changed everyone's lives forever. He not only sold his soul, he sold the soul of his entire band. Yeah. (laughs) So that's like five people. So he actually sold everyone's souls because he would get in his mind and what he was quote unquote promised that he would get even more for the more souls that he could provide to not necessarily the devil, but to like these creatures, this entity that he would get even more. And yeah, he becomes huge. And uh, this concept of like selling your soul metaphorically, literally, whatever, it's like the easy way out. He was tired of the 10 year struggle of them like playing in dive bars and maybe sleeping in vans and definitely not sleeping in nice hotel rooms and the comfort and the leisure and the convenience of being a popular metal band. And the rest of them that I, for my mind anyways, they seem pretty content. Like you put in the work to get where you want to go. And as we see in the book, they were on a tour with Slayer, like one of the opening bands for Slayer, which is huge. And that was going to be huge for them. They have Troglodyte waiting in the wings to be like their next big release. And like, this was going to be it. And this, I think, was going to that would have changed their their lives, I think, for the better in the long run. But no, Terry Hunt had to go and sell everyone's soul. Chris was like, no way. <laughs> yeah, well, what's really interesting, too, is like getting back to your saying about authenticity. Terry, in the sense of selling his soul, he allowed himself to end up becoming a corporate entity of yeah. a larger industry that ends up telling you what you need to play, how you need to play, and where you need to play. Whereas mm-hmm. the band itself was like, well, no, we want to play the type of metal we want to 
role play because we want to stay mm-hmm. authentic to ourselves. And there's that interesting sub story within the greater part of the story where they talk about the creation of Troglodyte, this uh, epic al- underground album that they are creating that they were going to release the night um, of contract night. And you list, you hear about how Chris talks about how each one of those songs had an element of each one of the different musicians in them and allowed them to bring mm-hmm. something authentic to the album. And that's what made it so special. And mm-hmm. that's why what Terry was producing now with his new band Coffin, which is so uh, garbage because it was there was yep. nothing authentic to it. It was just recycled material. Mm-hmm. It was the exact opposite of what everybody else wanted to do. And so I want to read a little passage about their reaction and what happened on contract night. And yeah, like, do it. To them thinking that they were selling out. Classic term of selling out. We missed out on grunge because we weren't ready, Terry said. We thought we were better than our audience. That's not going to happen this time. Coffin's new metal. The loudest sound in the room was a candle flickering in the cold draft that whined beneath the window. New metal was metal light, the flavor of moment that was ushering hardcore acts to mainstream success at the cost of their dignity. Bands that had been growling were suddenly rapping. Bass lines that had previously blasted now bounced with get on the dance floor funk. It was all about branding, fan outreach, accessibility, spray on attitude, moving crowds of white kids smoothly from your pit to your merch booth where they'd buy $20 Limp Biscuit beer cozies and $30 corn bandanas. New metal isn't about anything, Chris said. New metal kids are cul-de-sac crybabies with their baseball hats on backward. Every song is a little boy crying in his bedroom about how his girlfriend won't make him a sandwich like his mommy used to do. Can anyone really say what's good or what's bad? Rob asked. A band is a business and you have to think like businessmen. New metal moves units. If I wanted to go into business, I would have gotten a job, Chris said. Ooh, the reality of that when it happened in the 90s. That is so exactly on point. <laughs> Very on point of uh, the whole new metal phenomenon. But what it, we were getting to back to is this talking about the sense of mass marketing and you're in and selling out. So getting to this idea of authenticity, like our, like society craves authenticity and people we are generally drawn towards people that show something that is unique, that is independent, worth something to patronize that artist cow society like we crave authenticity but then we get to a point where when artists start to make more of a profit off of their work and their art we start to turn around and say that we are calling them sellouts because they're being more influenced by capitalist social relations of production right Mm -hmm. so but it was interesting because we like to think that our musicians are automatically seen as authentic, but that's classification that fans are giving artists. Yeah. So musicians, artists, anybody that's creative, they don't come with this like certificate of authenticity. I love that. It's a worth that we give to them, the people that are buying their art, you know, we're selling what they're putting out there and how they get that, of course, is our word of mouth. We go to their events, we go to their concerts, yeah. we engage yeah. with them, we buy their stuff, we do buy their merch and that all makes sense because we're supporting someone's art in whatever form and in this case it's music it's a metal band yes we want uniqueness we want integrity sincerity we want them to be real and the commercialization of whatever art again i'm generalizing it but metal music of a band can lead to a loss of this authenticity because it's the exact opposite of what we wanted we wanted them to be unique and like indie maybe underground and independent 
talent and not like we want to keep them as struggling artists, but we often equate success with morality. Yes, this authenticity of expression, right? Which is seen as the moral authority of lying with the creator and the, of the music. Mm-hmm. These creators that they're passionate and that they are marketing their product based on their passions and their motivations are based on passion, not yep. on product, not on mass commercialization, not mm-hmm. on money. It's not for the money. They're doing it because they love it and they're doing it for the art of the craft. So when we see our artists shift from an inspired world, we see them as selling them out. We see them losing that authenticity and becoming part of a market and a capitalist brand, which ends up ultimately shaping their morality and their ethos. And we see this in the book. Mm -hmm. We see Mm -hmm. how Terry has completely, you know, he's moved away from the music in general. Mm -hmm. And he's all about the brand, coffin brand, right? Clothing and underwear and beer cozies and all the things, right? Yeah. Well, they even mentioned in the book, it's like, we got so-and-so designing your costumes and we got this famous guitarist, like creating riffs as we speak, like, this is what we're going to do. And then the band's like, what are we just hired guns? Like, what, like, what are we going to do? Like, where, yeah, where is the passion? Where is where is our sense of personhood in Coffin? Like, they were not into that idea. And also, Jess, they did it all for the nookie. Oh, the what? Oh God. The nookie. The what? The, the, the nookie. nookie. <laughs> <laughs> so you can take it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, with metal, it, this is even more important because metal as a music genre for folks that maybe don't really listen to metal, that's not really a genre for you if you don't know too much about it. But like that is hugely important in the metal community is to stand by your passion and stand by the music that you're creating and trying to be innovative and being true to yourself and doing whatever the fuck you want to do because again metal never surrenders metal doesn't retreat like this is metal is power and when we see bands going against that And maybe that's like an expectation that we're putting onto them, but it's more upsetting in the metal community and the metal scene when we do see these musicians removing that sense of like genuine sincerity from their music and their fans and turn into a quote brand. Well, especially with like the history of metal itself, like it's a it's a genre of rebellion. It is a genre Mm -hmm. that glorifies violence and drugs. And, you know, we're metalheads. We we are counterculture. We don't we don't follow the mass media and stuff like that but then we did see a a point where all of a sudden as metal music was becoming popular especially for working class kids um, who wanted to like you know give a middle finger to their conservative parents um, the subculture it started to become more accepted and people were becoming more passionate about it but it, it was becoming more mainstream. And then all of a sudden, you have these more popular metal bands popping up all over the place, which ends up leading to items like glam metal bands adop- adopting like popular songs. You know, we get grunge drove metal back underground, back to its rebellious roots, but then we end up getting the hybridized and new metal of the late 90s and early 2000s. But I think what's really interesting is the um, going back to like this commercialization of metal and how this happened in this kind of like its history in the 70s and 80s. What I think is really interesting about the idea of like a brand or like maintaining authenticity is that sometimes there's a a paradox of if you try so hard to be a certain way, to be as real and true in this like elitist approach, and we see that a lot in metal and particularly the black metal scene, that it creates this kind of paradox and like you're trying to be so not a brand and not follow the rules that you've actually now just created a brand. 
you know, <laughs> so there's an aesthetic and there's a sound and you've kind of, tra- that's a contradiction. So maybe uh, it's yeah. inevitable that, you know, we are going to create, we might lose a little bit of authenticity because if you are buying into a certain genre, a look, a style, a sound, a lyrical theme, maybe it is inevitable, but I guess it's all in a band's reaction to and comfort level with what they want to put out there as again, as long as they're like staying generally true to what they true like want to do and express themselves and they're passionate about it, I guess then that's fine. But I was going to say, but then what do you think about things that happened like in the 80s and 90s and the 2000s when all of a sudden like these like popular metal bands of like, you know, art of, of, of old are all of a sudden have merchandise everywhere. Right, mm. like people you never yes. even right, you know, like Oz, like Ozzy Osbourne and Kiss, like you know, having these like yep. very popular names, and you can buy you know a fucking yeah. Kiss clock if you wanted to. Like, what about that? And how does that make the metal scene right? Because at some point you're gonna make money. Unfortunately, let's say Kiss because they're like the biggest name in like quote unquote selling out and creating themselves. Like Kiss is a brand; they're not even a band anymore. They're a brand, mm-hmm. and they're kind of a joke. And that's what happens. Like Ozzy Osbourne kind of became a joke. And like he was one of the originators of metal music. And Metallica was lambasted in the 90s, early 2000s for changing up their style to something that was a little bit more accessible. But also, you know, Cradle Filth. They were not an early 90s symphonic black metal band. And like they were initially seen as black metal. And then they changed things up in the 2000s where in the, the, the vocal style changed. Danny Filth was less of the like crazy banshee shrieking to something that was a little bit more easy to digest in in his vocal range. Also, I'm sure those early vocals are not good for your vocal cords, but there was a dynamic change and definitely a change in their music. So they went to, you know, people stopped calling them black metal. Now they kind of back are, but it's just like, maybe it's just a change in their style. When you become popular, I think it's inevitable that things are going to change. Is Cradle of Filth kind of a brand? Maybe a little bit. Their names are now on T, but you know, it's guess again, it comes down to, I think the, the idea of selling out and all of that is older, more traditional, outdated term. Yeah. I think more now, if anything, people are more concerned about how things are being perceived as part of the metal culture. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things that I wanted to touch upon was just really quickly about like, was about product placement and sponsorships at concerts. Like that's, that's really huge. I went to heavy MTL and there's brands every right and I I know that they're receiving that money to help get those shows up there and for the provide these concerts but at the same time too though you have bands like Korn and Epica Legion of the Damned Five Finger Death Punch you know they're having partnerships with Jägermeister that makes sense because you know metalheads we drink like we we do but then you have them like with like monster energy drinks as part of Mm like their you know as part kind of like it's not their branding but it's like it's in association with their um, art and it becomes part of their marketing marketing and it was really interesting too is because like while these artists themselves may not care about the product like to them it's just like Mm -hmm. oh whatever it's money to help us continue to do what we want to do and to get our name out there but it's confusing to really to younger fans because then they think well if I drink Jaeger and if I have an energy drink this is part of the metal culture and then they become brand obsessed about it because like oh well to be really part of metal I need to do this 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 and this and then Mm -hmm. once again that is at the same time too 
making metal more mainstream, Mm -hmm. making it more accessible to people, especially people in the suburban areas with money to spend. Mm -hmm. And then you get that crazy phenomena of new metal, which in my my mind, (laughs) new metal was making metal easier to swallow for the masses. Because previously we used to spit. (laughs) (laughs) In the 80s, we're spitting on everyone. We're spitting on your face. We're spitting blood into the crowd. Yeah, now we're, you know, now we have these bands that are coming out that are softer tones and they're more radio acceptable and you're hearing more metal because but it's it's new metal so it's you know people are mm-hmm. easy are, are enjoying it more because they're like oh well it's like it's Lincoln Park it's Limp Bizkit mm-hmm. it's all these mm-hmm. bands you know but you're mm-hmm. not hearing I don't I'm pretty sure I didn't hear Cradle Fifth on the radio or anything like that in the early nope. days but definitely not you definitely would not maybe now depending on the radio uh, station but uh, definitely not in the 90s yeah the the rise of metalcore and new metal was a bit of a turning point in metal and it's important to talk about because it's exactly what happens in the book right yes. dirt work which i wish was a real band because they sound rad you know they're like nope we're we're not making enough money this is we're gonna this is what's making the money like they said you gotta think like a business person like this is what's making the money and this is what's gonna rise us quickly to to stardom if we conform to this idea because hey everybody the kids are liking this this is where it's at and there is the that's definitely a controversy the whole new metal aspect of the the late 90s early 2000s yes metal became acceptable and accessible which I think in my mind is a positive thing I mean I'm glad that like heavy music was back to being acceptable like a lot of the glam stuff was like really accessible some of it was heavier Mm. than others but like folks were just like eating that up young people loved it and that was that's where it was at I was one of those young people (laughs) (laughs) you were in diapers when that was popular oh my goodness (laughs) but yeah like it's super fun drinking metal music Music. And then, yes, corn. Limp Bizkit, Slipknot, Cold Chamber, Deftones, they became less dangerous. And what I think is too bad and unfortunate about that era, generally speaking, of, of metal is they removed so much of what was metal that made metal metal, no longer threatening. It was no longer dangerous. They took away the imagery, the, the, the thematics, the mysticism, the occultism, Yeah, you know, just the danger out of it. And so that's why I feel like it has like less teeth, so to speak when it compared to it to other forms of metal sorry (laughs) for sure in my humble opinion (laughs) (laughs) but they're not innovating they're just like kind of stagnant they just keep just like putting out the same record all the time because that's what's making them money and because they're hip and new and popular you know you get signed to a record label and that was also the time you know same with the 80s of music videos and much music and MTV and people Mm. were you know enjoying music very differently than we do now and so getting money to make these music videos and watching them chug around with their backwards caps on but they're just like yep here's your four album deal and you got to do it in four years five years six years whatever it was so you just gotta like bang out those albums and despite quality you just had to put them out and there's that pressure too right if you don't have some leeway and flexibility in your record deal you just have to put out your albums you just have to that's it exactly and that leads into this really interesting article that I found in our research which came from American Express which as everyone (laughs) knows is a credit card company And in this article, it was they were giving tips to metal bands, to growing metal bands on how to attract, keep your fans like bands like Black Sabbath, Metallica and Disturbed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) And it's just like, 
the, the things that they have in this article is it says, you don't need to grow your hair or wear leather chaps on stage. You just need to chase <laughs> your passion. Never apologize for who you are. Serve your biggest fans, you know, by having public appearances and publicity and providing the service, you know, be on social media, you know, making noise, have fun and do what you do best, but be open to new opportunities to make sure you rem but remember to know your core and that you're doing your best. I'm like, hmm, new opportunities coming from a credit card company? Okay. <laughs> 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 Once again, corporatization of a, of a genre, but which is super interesting, though, because as you were saying, with uh, commercialization of a genre such as the metal genre, while it's super interesting how that comes and how it changed in the different subgenres that we end up getting, earlier on in the 1970s and 80s, when metal started being more mainstream or popular, it ended up being under threat and mm -hmm. targeted for a lot of us, Kelly was saying earlier, mm -hmm. a lot of the imagery that was in metal, which became the huge focus of the 1980s satanic panic. With the history of Satanic Panic, we're just going to go into like a little brief thing, more focusing on the heavy metal aspect of it, because next month we will be getting into talking about Satanic Panic in the terms of the cult aspect of it. But one of the biggest things is that it didn't really first start, it didn't start out against heavy metal right away. It started out against um, rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So a lot of religious conservatives early in the 1950s were really concerned about rock and roll. And they're really concerned about a particular individual named Elvis Presley su <laughs> sexually suggestively dancing on TV. <laughs> he, they, they felt his pelvis was a threat and that mm -hmm. he could not have his uh, waist shown from the waist down on TV. And this was like the start of oh no, rock and roll is all about oh, sex yes. and drugs and they're going to crop our children. <laughs> and then as we get into the 1960s, we start mm. seeing more interest in counterculture. So you know, mm -hmm. we, do, we do start seeing some uh, metal bands are coming out around this time, but we also see the rise of Christian groups going after esoteric religions and various mm -hmm. elements of counterculture, saying that they were actively trying to ferment opposition against the Christian message and way of life. Then you get John Lennon, who jumps out and speaks out against Christianity in, in his little saying that he was, that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, but the mm. Christians felt threatened by this. Uh -oh. And they felt that if they did not get rock and roll under control, they it would lead to society's decay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then we get into, and around this time, you start seeing a lot of horror movies, satanic imagery in horror movies, you know, yeah, Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, yep. showing like more evidence that society was starting to decay. All these little elements, these little snippets of things throughout kind of popular culture and things that our, our youths were being subjected to. This quote, the start of the satanic conspiracy, which brings us into the 80s in the U.S., where our politics were sadly our theirs, uh, were highly, highly religious. Our Christian right, our Ronald Reagan, you know, our country was moving, their country was moving on from the 70s, which was full of like drugs and sexual freedom and new age religions. Um, so we have to get a handle on that because people were getting out of control. They were having sex, they were having a good time, living life. So we have our religious right being quite upset about that. And there were three things that were huge that essentially started the huge wave of satanic panic. One was the belief in widespread satanic covens. 
they believed that those were a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Two were the children were being abused by satanic rituals. And the third one, that pop culture and popular media were being used by satanic forces to manipulate and corrupt our kids, our young people. And there's a lot of things like D&D and yeah, horror movies they hated. Comic books. like Comic books, yeah. Like all those things. But music, particularly metal, was hit the absolute hardest. And so why was heavy metal targeted during the 80s during this? Well, as metal fans, it's obvious to us, but it's a huge difference in lyrical theme, musical style, the volume you listen to metal on. It's transgressive. It's subversive. It, like horror movies, pushes the boundaries of social appropriateness. It busts our taboos. It challenges the norm. It talks about sex, the occult, death, violence, mutilation, and more. You know, we had people coming out saying that there are various metal songs that had subliminal messaging or um, what they call it, backtracking, um, right? Where they Backmasking. Backmasking, thank you. <laughs> where they would, you know, if you play it backwards, there were like negative lyrics in it and telling you they had yeah. to praise Satan. <laughs> or kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and, but then at the same time too, though, Right, so metal has all these imagery in at the same time too, but what's really interesting too is that at the time, all this imagery to metal musicians was nothing but showmanship. It was mm-hmm. nothing about just like in a way for them to take advantage of the popularity, right? Like Fun. You know, right, they're having fun. They're just like, yes, you know, we have darker imagery right you know, right, right now. Like, yes, maybe some musical groups did embrace the esoteric as a spiritual path, but there mm-hmm. were no way threats. There are some metal musicians who are Satanists, but that's, you know, a part of them and part of their music and they're on the aspect of, but they're not telling people to go and actually hurt anyone or damage society. But you had churches going around having sermons, teaching people about the evils of heavy metal music and warning mm-hmm. them against the dangers of Satan and saying like, Satan likes heavy metal music. And if your, your children <laughs> likes heavy metal music, then they're more likely going to be Satanist growing up. Very rarely was the devil ever really to blame. It was all sensationalism. Because <laughs> that's what metal is about. We're a culture of counterculture, of controversy. We are transgressive. Ooh, yes. Yeah. So it makes us really easy to fucking scapegoat metal music of the time you know you have venom and king diamond mm. and motley Crue and a lot of those you know a lot of bands like that ozzy osbourne acdc iron maiden kiss judas priest that all yeah they used a lot of yeah occult imagery and it was it definitely was new and big and bombastic and different to see again much music mtv like that was a thing that was growing at the time we saw all this in like music videos album covers and stuff like that it was offensive it was considered dangerous and definitely was going to corrupt our youth and cause violent behavior mental illness and them to commit crimes and metal is just all about like horror exploring humanity's darker side and stories of just what happens in everyday life or it's not and it's all just imagery for funsies because metal is super fun. So moving on, so all of that, so you have all of these things combined. (laughs) Church and state and communities are all up in arms. Satan's in their children. Satan's in the music. Satan's in our community. What are we going to do about this? So around 1985 is when things shit kind of starts hitting the fan, which was instigated by a woman named Tipper Gore who is the wife of Senator Al Gore and the spokeswoman of the PMRC, which stands for the Parents Music 
Resource Center. They targeted heavy metal as one of the most threatening musical genres. So they were all over the media. Huge trials bringing, you know, bands to to trial because they were so absolutely offensive and trying to censor them. In one particular instance in 1985 about lyrics... So this was one of the earliest cases as a young man, 20-year-old James Vance, tried to sue Judas Priest. So after a night of partying, Vance and his friend headed over to a local playground and shot themselves. So unfortunately, this guy's friend didn't survive, but Vance did and would file the lawsuit against Judas Priest because he claimed that there were subliminal messages in their stained glass album that drove him commit this crime. There wasn't an actual empirical evidence to substantiate any of those claims. So obviously, you know, nothing happened with that lawsuit that didn't convince and it didn't matter to our concerned parents and those that are campaigning against heavy metal because Satan lurked in every quarter and every suburb. With the Tipper Gore and these proceedings, CDs going on, these lawsuits going out against these metal bands, like it also didn't help that, yes, there were some mentally yeah. ill individuals who went down some darker paths in their lives. And then a couple other examples was the uh, trial of Ricky Casso. So he was a 17 year old drug dealer and he was a self professed Satanist. He, he, he did uh, say, and he had murdered his friend Gary Lowers in the woods of Newport while high, so mm. really super high. And he blamed that in his high state that Satan was telling him to do this. But the, ma- the media had mm-hmm. a heyday on this because they're like, wow, He's part of a Satanist, and he listens to ACDC. Look, he's wearing an ACDC shirt. And that also happened, again, to uh. ACDC with their song mm-hmm. Night Prowler was linked to the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, who uh, terrorized the city of L.A. during one summer on his satanic serial killer um, spree that he was doing. Mm-hmm. But the people, the media, was going around saying, well, because he listens to ACDC, which actually stands for Antichrist, Devil's Child, people did mm-hmm. not know this, and their Night Prowler was to blame. And so it was like they were linking these incidences, these small incidences to people who looked Mm -hmm. like a metal fan or wore a metal t-shirt or listened Mm -hmm. to Black Sabbath, you know, and the media had a frenzy which would lead into these trials that Tipper Gore was having. Like, Mm -hmm. of course, these are wrong for our children because these are, these are Satanists. And then we get the amazing Geraldo Rivera with his drive against uh, metalheads where he did um, a show, an episode where he looked at Satanism and devil worship and he depicted metalheads as blood drinking, grave all being sacrilegious <laughs> I wish <laughs> yeah right so you didn't help when the media was turning around and scapegoating metal even more by saying like these are bad people because they're bad people they're Satanist and Tipper Gore came out with that ridiculous filthy 15 list of pretty much arbitrarily chosen random songs where out of 15 of them nine of them are actually metal songs like Motley Crue's Bastard Twisted Sisters We're Not Gonna Take It Def Leppard's High and Dry Merciful Fates Into the Coven and Venom's Possessed and what I love about this and always makes me laugh because this is so fucking metal is that especially like across the ocean bands like Venom we have you know King Diamond from Merciful Fate they didn't even really know this was happening. Somebody was villainizing their music, their lyrics, their their image, and like totally persecuting them without them even knowing it. But they hilarious. They appreciate the publicity because like they don't give a fuck. I mean, King Diamond, though, is an actual Satanist, card-carrying member of the yes, Church of yeah. Satan. You know, so those like Merciful Fate would not have fared well in the trials because their, you know, their lyrics were heavily influenced by horror, Satan, the occult. Same with Venom. But like they didn't care. The other thing 
thing that I really love. So some musicians like Twisted Sisters, Dee Snyder, ended up having to, you know, come on trial and defend his music, defend his passion for his music and actually show how wrong they were. You know, they I, I've watched it. It's on mm-hmm. YouTube, folks. It's so fantastic because he just blows into the courtroom looking like an 80s metalhead because this is who he is. He's not going to conform to it and put on a suit and fix his wild hair. No, he's going to come in. And he was highly intelligent, highly articulate. And that just kind of blew them away. He's like, no, that's not my music. I myself am a Christian. No, that's not what this is about. This is my family life. Because they bring up his family life a lot. Like, oh, you tour a lot. Is that like good for your child? And it's like, they're just like, they're so (laughs) reaching. They're reaching so much to try to find something really terrible within these people to make everything that they're doing not be in vain, right? But he came in and he just blew them away. And it's so terrible. There was also uh, a 2020 documentary called Devil Worshippers that talked about, you know, document all the different symbols and the imagery that are associated with Satan and the occult. Mm-hmm. You see this number 666, pentagrams, inverted crosses, of course, all these things that you would see on the covers of heavy metal albums in the 80s, which I think brings us back to the book. So within We Sold Our Souls, there are these really wonderful chapter dividers that are like news reports, radio reports um, what's going on in the world either it's like in a flashback or like modern or like present time so this was um, a more present time one and it said it's from nine it's december 14 1993 it was this radio program denver praise and christian leadership network as follows reverend carson You've been studying fans of heavy metal music, satanic music, occult music, whatever you want to call it, for a long time. Who listens to this stuff? Dr. Padmir. By and large, these are low-functioning individuals who score poorly on most metrics we use to examine human behavior. Low IQ, low patience, low confidence, low reliability. Where they score highly are in areas like anger, deceit, narcotic and alcohol abuse, suicide rates. Reverend Carson. In other words, these are not people you want to marry in your daughter. Dr. Padmir. Definitely not. That sums up a hell of a lot of the stigmatization against metal, against metalheads, satanic panic, religious right, trying to police. And I don't know what studies is that person talking about? Probably made up or some funded research by churches type of thing. We realized too, like satanic panic was big in the 80s. It did eventually start to cool down. It's really interesting that you're reading that section and Mm -hmm, the date is from mm -hmm. the 90s because while we see satanic panic cooling down, we did once again see that attachment of metal and devil worship with Marilyn Manson. Like I remember growing up and hearing all the rumors about Marilyn Manson and how he was a prime example of parental fears because you know his lyrics and his imagery were very like satanic and evil and you know very uncomfortable and and because uh fans of his dylan and eric who were both the shooters of the columbine tragedy he was vilified Mm -hmm. and scapegoated because of all that because they were fans of his music and i remember when that happened and i remember people being like oh my god part of this like you can't listen to Mm -hmm. marilyn manson or all this stuff is going to happen to you and i remember like it was just like once again this rise of well if you listen Mm -hmm. to metal music and you listen that and it's associated to satanic imagery and suicide and suggestive lyrics this is going to happen to you so you Mm -hmm. need to stop or it's going to it's just going to ruin your life and once again metal being Mm -hmm. scapegoated what's also kind of disturbing about that passage is it is true that there are a lot of metal fans that you know metal appeals to a lot of certain types of people the outcasts maybe they have they come from very troubled 
backgrounds, troubled homes, and music. You can read in Jess's blog post, like music, metal music provides them with a catharsis and a way to express their rage and express their emotions. And those people, they, I mean, you know, you separate the person from the music. Like those people, they turn to music, yeah. they turn to metal because it speaks to them on a deeply personal level. And they may just happen to be troubled individuals. Doesn't mean the music has caused any of this. They're troubled to begin with. And I think the music actually helps a lot of these people. Well, like the music has nothing to do with them as in, like it's part of them as yeah. their identities, but it's not something to blame for, for mm-hmm. types of behaviors. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Like back then it's like, you're not necessarily looking at their mental health or the environment that they're yeah. growing in. And one of the prime examples of how damaging the stereotyping can be is the West Memphis three case. And Kelly and I did a mini episode on that. We'll, we'll be launching that in a yeah. couple of weeks, but really important for people to look yeah. into and listen to because that is a prime example about how satanic panic and this whole scapegoating of metal can lead to the damaging of uh, the lives of three young men and never getting the actual killer of three young boys. Yeah, prime example. It was a very frustrating, infuriating, upsetting uh, research for for that. So folks, yeah, please take a listen to it. So I had a theory today, perhaps that Black Iron Mountain and We Sold Our Souls is satanic panic. It's the industry, the society and religion all all rolled into one trying to control what we do, say, and think. And troglodyte in the book is the answer to how to get out of that cycle of censorship, oppression, and how to remain true to yourself and your creative passions, despite how controversial or blasphemous they might be. I really like that theory. <laughs> I really do. End it there. Podcast done. <laughs> Black Iron Mountain is satanic panic. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our new sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're Spencer's, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or a good book. Yes, with a hot mug of delicious tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more. But what really stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky names. With Chai the 13th and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in I love Croconut. And I'm currently obsessed with Screamsicle. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian listeners, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. Okay, so my final thoughts here today about a variety of different things. We touched on so many things today. One, this was our first time doing a book. And I'm really happy that we did. And Spencer's Book Club will definitely return in the future because I loved, I really loved doing this. So Jess, (laughs) for sure, we gotta, we gotta do a book again. I liked this a lot. Um, So folks, if you have recommendations, let us know. 
Uh, I definitely fell in love with Grady Hendrix <laughs> this month after reading We Sold Our Souls. And it's been backed up by reading other work, you know, meeting him and seeing his interest and passion and what he has done. He's a genuinely nice dude. He's a talented man. And I'm definitely going to seek out the rest of his work after this. We Sold Our Souls sold me on Grady Hendrix. My thoughts on fanatical Christians? Well, those might be a little bit too unpolite to state currently, but they might come out a little bit over the next month or so. But again, what I'll say, the satanic panic was predicated on a rhetoric of fear and stereotypes, not critical thinking or rational thoughts. And that is a huge stain on U.S. history. I personally haven't used the term selling out in probably 20 years. It's not in my vocabulary anymore. And we kind of talked about this, but I don't think it really is so much in our vernacular anymore. Um, I think artists and musicians should play whatever they want to play in whatever style they want to play in and do whatever they want with their art and whatever suits them best in their careers and their passions, whatever drives them, do it. If you want to be really popular and be mainstream and that makes you happy, do it. If not, don't. Yeah, so if you want to play accessible, radio-friendly music, do it. That's fine. I'm happy if you're happy. And as the cool kids say, you do you. And that's fantastic. So keep doing that. I personally want, I want that authenticity. I want that personal experience with a band when I go to see them. And I have seen, like, I've seen mainstream successful metal bands and like bigger venues with a huge crowd. And like, that's really cool. And I do enjoy doing that. I'd love to see Cradle of Filth again. I saw them probably over a decade ago and it was a smaller show. It'd be huge now. And I would totally love to see them again. But so many of my favorite bands I've seen and in many shows I've seen in grungy dive bars. Those Inamon shows are actually my favorite. Uh, metal music is horror in sonic form. Both are stigmatized for being absolutely terrible nonsense trash because they're vastly misunderstood. Metal can be depressing and bleak, but also epic when the lyrics about dragons and sword women and elves and fighting evil and overpowering and conquering our fears. Metal is actually, folks, very rarely truly satanic, but it is always about passion. Metal is power. A girl with a guitar never has to apologize for anything. Reading We Sold Our Souls for a second time around didn't just resonate with me as a metalhead, but also a middle-aged woman just trying to find her way in this topsy-turvy world. Both the journeys of Chris and Melanie finding themselves upon was not just about surviving a world about capitalism and that dominates us and makes us slave to us all, but also finding a place and a world to maintain our authenticity. We are all striving these days to stay true to ourselves and present to the world our most authentic imagery. But... At times, if we want to make anything out of what we find, we need to sell pieces of ourselves just to become part of the mainstream and generally accepted. But ultimately, we have seen with the era of satanic panic that when metal genre became more part of the mainstream culture, it also became a target because there's nothing in metal that is deemed acceptable. It is a genre that is extreme and aggressive, like Kelly said, and like the horror genre, it reveals truth about the darkest elements of our lives, such as violence, sex, drugs, and general terror, which is terrifying to the world of suburbia and the cookie cutter wives of America. <laughs> To maintain authenticity, we must make ourselves outsiders, and at times that places us in dangerous positions at the mercy of supposed societal norms. That is why it is important, now more than ever, for people who do feel alienated, who do feel isolated or different, embrace who they are, what makes them different, and others like them, and to strengthen each other as a community to protect ourselves and others and to keep others from harming us. 
So on that note, that ends our review of Grady Hendrix's novels, We Sold Our Souls. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music, Robeast, and Brandon for his work on our promotional materials. Also to all you listeners, and we want to remind you to follow us on our website at spinstersofhorror.com, our Facebook group, Spinsters of Horror, and also join our Facebook coven group. We're on Twitter at Horror Spinsters. We're also on Instagram at Spinsters of Horror. As well, please, please, please rate and review us on iTunes and any podcasting app you listen to us on because that really helps us get the show out to all you horror fans. We have merch, so please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and buy stickers from our shop. We also have a donation button on our shop page if you'd like to contribute to our spooky cause. Next month is October, the high, unholy season for horror fans everywhere. So to keep with the chilling, spooky atmosphere, we're going to be talking about Satanism. More Satan. Hail Satan. (laughs) Specifically, Satanic cults and how they are represented in film in comparison to what modern Satanism really is. The films up for discussion will be Ty West's House of the Devil from 2009 and the 1971 film The Blood on Satan's Claw. We also have a menagerie of spooky plans for the month, so stay tuned. But until then, remember... Remember, the future of fear is female.